Chapter 20 of Prejudices, First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prejudices, First Series by H. L. Mencken. Among the Avatars. It may be, as they say, that we Americanos lie in the gutter of civilization, but all the while, our eyes steal cautious glances at the stars. In the midst of the prevailing materialism, the thin incense of mysticism. As a relief from money drives, politics and the struggle for existence, Rosicrucianism, the Knights of Pythias, passwords, grips, secret work, the 33rd degree. In flight from Peruna, Mandrake Pills and Fletcherism, Christian Science, the Emmanuel Movement, the New Thought. The tendency already has its poets, Edwin Markham and Ella Wheeler Wilcox. It has acquired its romancer, Will Levington Comfort. This comfort wields an easy pen. He has done, indeed, some capital melodramas, and when his ardor heats him up, he grows downright eloquent. But of late, the whole force of his aesthetic engines has been thrown into propaganda by the Bhagavad Gita out of Victorian sentimentalism. The nature of this propaganda is quickly discerned. What comfort preaches is a sort of mellowed mariolatry, a humorless exaltation of woman, a flashy effort to turn the inter-attraction of the sexes ordinarily a mere cause of scandal, into something transcendental and highly portentous. Woman, it appears, is the beyond man, the trans-mammal, the nascent angel. She is the upward path, the way to consecration, the door to the third lustrous dimension. All the mysteries of the cosmos are concentrated in mystic motherhood, whatever that may be. I capitalize in the Comfortian and New Thought manner. On one page of Fate Knocks at the Door, I find Voices, Pits of Trade, Woman, The Great Light, The Big Deep, and The Twentieth Century Lie. On another are The Rising Road of Man, The Transcendental Soul Essence, The Way Uphill, The Sempiternal Mother, Thus, Andrew Bedient, the spouting hero of the tale, I believe in the natural greatness of woman, that through the spirit of woman are born sons of strength, that only through the potential greatness of woman comes the militant greatness of man. I believe mothering is the loveliest of the arts, that great mothers are handmaidens of the spirit, to whom are entrusted God's avatars, that no prophet is greater than his mother. I believe when humanity arises to spiritual evolution, as it once evolved through flesh and is now evolving through mind, woman will assume the ethical guiding of the race. I believe that the Holy Spirit of the Trinity is mystic motherhood, and the source of the divine principle is woman that the prophets are the union of this divine principle and the higher manhood, 
that they are beyond the attractions of women of flesh, because unto their manhood has been added mystic motherhood. I believe that the way to godhood is the rising road of man. I believe that as the human mother brings a child to her husband, the father, so mystic motherhood, the Holy Spirit, is bringing the world to God, the Father. The capitals are Andrews, or Comforts. I merely transcribe and perspire. This Andrew, it appears, is a sea cook, who has been mellowed and transfigured by exhaustive study of the Bhagavad Gita, one of the sacred nonsense books of the Hindus. He doesn't know who his father was, and he remembers his mother only as one dying in a strange city. When she finally passed away, he took to the high seas and mastered marine cookery, thus for many years up and down the world. Then he went ashore at Manila and became chef to an army pack train. Then he proceeded to China, to Japan, then to India, where he entered the forestry service and plotted the Himalayan heights, always with the Bhagavad Gita under his arm. At some time or other, during his years of culinary seafaring, he saved the life of a Yankee ship captain, and that captain, later dying, left him untold millions in South America. But it is long after all this is past that we have chiefly to do with him. He is now a young Monte Cristo at large in New York, a Monte Cristo worshipped and gurgled over by a crowd of mushy old maids, a hero of Unida biscuit parties in godforsaken studios, the madness and despair of senescent virgins. But it is not Andrew's wealth that inflames these old girls, nor even his manly beauty, but rather his revolutionary and astounding sapience, his great gift for solemn and incomprehensible utterance, his skill as a metaphysician. They hang upon his every word. His rhetoric makes their heads swim. Once he gets fully under way, they almost swoon. And what girls they are! Alas, what pathetic neck-stretching toward tinsel stars! What eager hearing of the soulful, gassy stuff! One of them has red hair and, quote, wine-dark eyes, now cryptic black, now suffused with red glows like the night sky above a prairie fire, end quote. Another is, quote, tall and lovely in a tragic flower-like way, end quote and performs upon the violoncello. A third is, quote, a tanned woman rather variously weathered, end quote, who writes stupefying epigrams about Whitman and Nietzsche, making the latter's name Nietzsche, of course. A fourth is, quote, the gray one, end quote. Oh, mystic appellation. A fifth, but enough, you get the picture. You can imagine how Andrew's sagacity staggers these poor dears. You can see them fighting for him, each against all with sharp psychical excaliburs. Arm in arm with all this exaltation of woman, of course, goes a great suspicion of mere woman. The combination is as old as Christian mysticism, and Havelock Ellis has discussed its origin and nature at great length.
On the one hand is the Ubermensch. On the other hand is the Temptress, the Lorelei. The Madonna and Mother Eve, the Celestial Virgins and the Succubi. The hero of Fate Knocks at the Door for All His Flaming Words still distrusts his goddess. His colleague of Down Among Men is poisoned by the same suspicions. Woman has led him up to grace. She has shown him the upward path. She has illuminated him with her mystic motherhood. But the moment she lets go his hand, he takes to his heels. What is worse, he sends a friend to her, I forget her name and his, to explain in detail how unfavorably any further communion with her would corrupt his high mission, i.e., to save the downtrodden by writing plays that fail and books that not even Americans will read. An intellectual milk-toast, a mixture of Dr. Frank Crane and Mother Tingley, of Edward Bach and the Archangel Eddie. So far, not much of this ineffable stuff has got among the best-sellers, but I believe that it is on its way. Despite materialism and pragmatism, mysticism is steadily growing in fashion. I hear of paunchy Freemasons holding sacramental meetings on Maundy Thursday, of senators in Congress railing against materia medica, of presidents invoking divine intercession at cabinet meetings, the new thoughters march on. They have at least a dozen prosperous magazines, and one of them has a circulation comparable to that of any twenty-cent repository of lingerie fiction. Such things as karma, the ineffable essence, and the zeitgeist become familiar fauna, chained up in the cage of every woman's club. Thousands of American women know far more about the subconscious than they know about plain sewing. The pungency of myrrh and frankincense is mingled with odeur de femme. Physiology is formally repealed and repudiated. Its laws are all lies. No doubt, the fleshly bestseller of the last decade with its blushing amorousness, its flashes of underwear, its obstetrics between chapters, will give place to a more delicate piece of trade goods tomorrow. In this new thought novel, the hero and heroine will seek each other out, not to spoon obscenely behind the door, but for the purpose of uplifting the race. Kissing is already unsanitary. In a few years it may be downright sacrilegious, a crime against some obscure avatar or other, a business libidinous, and accursed. End of chapter 20. Recording by Linda Johnson.